0: Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. As India locked down to tackle the coronavirus, Hundreds and thousands of migrants working in the country's urban centers were left with no income and little social security. Consequently, they were forced to return to their homes, experiencing extraordinary privations as public transportation was unavailable. It's been nearly five months since this crisis began unfolding. With the economy reopening now, some migrant workers have been able to return to the cities for work. But for many others, the continuing economic slump has precluded this possibility. The situation is further complicated by the desire of many migrants to stay put in their homes owing to concerns about the pandemic as well as its economic toll. In this episode of Interpreting India, we examine the impact of the migrant crisis on Indian economy and society. How has the crisis impinged on India's urban and rural labor markets? How effective has the government's response been? And what does this crisis hold? for India's historical patterns of internal migration. Joining us today to discuss the implications of this crisis is Professor Chinmay Tumbe. Chinmay is an assistant professor of economics at the Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. He holds a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a doctorate from the Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore. Chinmay has worked in academic, corporate, and government institutions in India, Britain, and Italy, he has also served on an inter-ministerial working group on migration, and his research has featured in journals, newspapers, and policy portals. He is the author of the book, India Moving, A History of Migration, published in 2018. Chinmayer's research interests include migration studies, urban economics, business, and economic history. Chinmayer, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here today. Hi, thanks for having me, over. Chinmay, can we begin by talking a little bit about what you see as the sort of main features and developments in the migrant crisis that began in April? I mean, what are the reasons uh, that this took place in the first place? How has it evolved in the subsequent months? You know, initially we saw a lot of uh, imagery and reportage about the sort of difficulties that the migrants were experiencing, particularly in getting back to their homes and so on. Uh, but since then, clearly, the story has moved off the front pages. So I was just wondering if you could give us an overview, really, of how you see the story has I mean, panned out over the past few months.
1: Yeah, firstly, I mean, you know, it it was quite a remarkable situation we had for nearly two or three months, where uh, we for probably for the first time in 150 years, you know, shut down the Indian railways which I think was uh, done at you know a very, very quick notice, uh, which basically just stranded literally millions of people in their works. And of course, that was deliberate in order to keep the virus in check and so on. Uh, but I think the announcement that was done over the lockdown really didn't have much of a plan option or, or planning in place for the migrants, uh, which was very surprising because there was at least one government report in 2017 and the economic survey numbers in 2016, which clearly showed the staggering scale of internal migration and the paucity of social security schemes when people are on the move. So this is not the case that the, you know, the government didn't know. Clearly, the it, and those were well-publicized well numbers and reports, so, so it was a bit of a surprise as to how there was absolutely no sort of planning in place for migrants. And not surprisingly, you saw a very rational response uh, because uh, people, the migrants, circular migrants in particular, um, if their income stream is sort of stopped, then, uh, you know, it, the most rational response is to try and go back home because that's where the family support is. That's where the social security is. So even if you want free ration and so on, that's where uh, going back home uh, is much more convenient. It didn't help that there was a lot of interstate sort of coordination mess. So some states allowed people to come back for a few few days, few weeks. Some states did not. Uh, and so, you know, it, it became a very sordid saga. Uh, in the end. Uh, and what we saw then finally was desperation. I think the fundamental problem was there was no credibility of the deadline. So when they first announced the lockdown, they said three weeks. Uh, and you know, it was uh, until April 15th or so. And I remember that, you know, there were clearly, there were rumors in the first week that the lockdown would be uh, postponed. And the government said, no, no, there are no rumors. It's going to be April 15th, come what may. And very quickly, that you know, then, and then as As it panned out, it just kept getting extended. So that was the credibility crisis. That is, since people did not know how long they're going to be in this vulnerable state, they just began to walk. Uh, And so I think that was really the tipping point. That is, you could not see how long this is going to last. Uh, And that is why I feel the government should have let the migrants go back in the first week itself uh, with with some time. But that's anyway, post facto kind of reasoning. in terms of, you know, the scale are quite staggering. Uh, most people, you know, putting in the numbers in tens of millions, not just millions. I've put the number at 30 million uh, in terms of people going back, uh, both interstate and intrastate. And just just the number that we know from the Shramik trains was about 5 million. So we know that, I mean, 5 million definitely went back, you know, in the trains, but we know a lot of them went before the trains. And so the, the numbers are staggering. And the way they went back, you know, I mean, it was really literally seen since partition, where you know you see these long corridors of people walking uh, and so on. So quite a horrific incident, uh, in my view, completely unnecessary. It's we literally created a crisis within a crisis. Yes, there is a pandemic; it calls for you know uh, uh, so once in a kind of century kind of an event. Uh, but I don't think too many countries of the world you know had a migration crisis, uh, and I believe this happened because whatever the merits or demerits of a strict lockdown that we did eventually on March 24th, uh, not giving the option for migrant workers to go back, I think was uh, a big mistake. And then once you've taken the decision of containing uh, people in the place they supposed to be, uh, not having a clear communication on what kind of benefits you're going to give was the second blunder. Uh, And so, you know, eventually of course uh, what happened was that migrants went back in the month of May when the infection rates were much higher. So it kind of did not really, I mean, the original purpose of not letting migrants go back was that they'll spread the disease. But as it turned out, they they were allowed to go back two months later when the infection rates were high. So, you know, again, it it didn't really make sense in terms of what the government was thinking. The only sort of rational way one could defend those, those policies was that maybe rural areas were not simply not prepared or a quick influx of infected people back home uh, and so those two months gave them a time to you know ramp up facilities and so on maybe there's some merit in that argument uh, but i do think that the government sort of overestimated the infection rate in march now on hindsight clearly were, were flawed right chinmay yeah. the
0: comparison that you made to partition and the kind of uh, you know flow of people that we saw then in some ways is a very striking comparison but uh, but it also seems to me that On this occasion, you know, unlike, say, what happened at the time of partition, where the movement of people was actually geographically quite localized, if you look at it, right? I mean, obviously, the scale and the convulsions were phenomenal. But, uh, you know, the movement was actually, in in, in many ways, geographically fairly localized. Whereas what we saw here was at a more or less a very large kind of peninsular uh, and North Indian scale, right? And it, it seems to me that the crisis has really, in a way, put the spotlight on... In terms of showing us how the economy is constituted, you know, which is how these patterns of migration are in some ways so central to the way that our economy functions, as you quite rightly say, the, uh, you know, the, uh, some of these data have been known, Uh, the economic survey of 2016, uh, to which I think you also contributed, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, does sort of did put out uh, some of these things in considerable number but I think like all crises you know when uh, one of the good things about crises is that you know we learn to look at our systems from angles that previously might have escaped us and it seems to me that you know this crisis really thrown into sharp relief the importance of migration cycles and remittances to various parts and regions of India. So I'm just wondering you know what has been the impact in terms of you know Economic impact, particularly on those uh, regions which are sending outward migrants and receiving remittances, uh, and and the reversal of this phenomenon in in such a sudden and sharp way.
1: Yeah, it's been quite uh, you know, tremendous. It's hard to give an exact number, but I mean the remittance economy of India, the internal remittance economy of India, runs in tens of billions of dollars in equivalent, you know, uh, uh, terms. I mean, we say about you know seventy billion dollars comes to India's international remittances, and a number not as big as that. But somewhere in that ballpark is, you know, domestic remittances. Um, and what we've basically seen is a complete shutdown of those remittances now for literally four months. So it, it, it has a huge impact, you know, it has a huge impact on rural economies sustained by remittances. Kerala, in terms of international remittances, but mainly, you know, we're talking of coastal Orissa, we're talking of Eastern UP, we're talking of Bihar, we're talking of parts of Andhra Pradesh, we're talking of yeah. large parts of Rajasthan, large parts of Uttarakhand, you know, it's complete remittance hill economy. So the remittance economy of India, you know, estimated it affects about 20% of households in rural India. So one in five households in rural India has been really affected by just this complete uh, sort of switching off the tap of remittances. Uh, and that is why you're seeing, you know, at least some migrants come back now because they realize how important the jobs are, how important remittances are. So there's absolutely no doubt that you know th- there's an economic knock-on effect. And I'll just give you an example. Even before the pandemic, for example, you know, this going back home. Has happened in the past whenever there was an industrial recession, but they were localized, and of course the trains were working uh, at that time, so they didn't have to suffer the journey. So, for example, in Surat, you know, Surat is completely linked to—I mean—a huge part of it is a diamond industry, uh, a huge part of it is a synthetic textile industry, and so whenever there was a recession, people would just you know, go back home because there's no work available. So it's a classic response of migrants uh, to go back home, and whenever the Surat's economy would be hit. You would find a knock-on effect in Ghanjam in coastal Orissa, which sends a lot of people to Surat. You would find an impact on Bhavnagar and Mareli, districts in Gujarat. which send people to Surat, so the Surat economy is linked to the international economy, but it's also, you know, linking itself to the economies of Ghanjam, economies of Bhavnagar and Mareli. And so the same thing has happened now. Surat, of course, is devastated. I mean, the labor force, you know went back eventually in, in May. There were you know, literally protests and so on out there during the crisis because you know, something like 60% of the workforce there comes from uh, outside. Uh, so when these people have gone back now, it has really shut down the remittance uh, supply. Uh, and so those source regions, you know, one in five households in rural India, uh, are, are, are really, really badly affected by... Uh, uh, this migrant crisis. And that is why I think the, the pressure, when people say, you know, what policy options exist, I think the pressure to go back to the cities is, is immense because uh, there is considerable distress uh, thanks to that. I should mention though, uh, there is a migration season. You know, There is a, a, a calendar of migration and people do go back in the month of June and July every year for the monsoon season. So in that sense, you know, like the construction industry, it, it, it goes in a small like stand still during June and July every year because of the monsoon and labor also goes back and after the monsoon and then finish the sowing and so on, they come back. So there is a seasonality to the large circular migration that we're seeing. What is different this year is that people have gone back a month or two earlier and, you know, they might come back on time or they might come back a bit later. So that's, it's disrupted that migration pattern, And that's why the economies of in the month of May when unlock started, there's literally no labor, which was unexpected. In June and July, the construction industry anyway anticipates a shortage of labor because anyway, people do that. Uh, but I think April and May was, you know, completely unanticipated So huge knock-on effect in the source field.
0: Right. And uh, clearly, you know, the economy is slowly coming back into activity, but, uh, you know, various sectors are going to take you know, different timescales by which they may even come back to anything approximating the sort of pre-lockdown kind of uh, levels of activity, right? And uh, it's not even clear what the impact of this prolonged period of economic lockdown will have on the sustainability of many of these businesses and even perhaps of industries, right? I mean, things like construction industry seem to be in pretty deep water. So how should we then think about, you know, the resumption of, you know, migratory flows back into urban labor centers? given that the economy is not going to come back in one big bang, right? I mean, it's, it's going to sort of shift its shape considerably as it tries to get back to something appro- approximating what happened before the uh, lockdown happened.
1: Yeah, I think right now the economy is still operating. I mean, at the peak, you know, we're saying what, 15 to 20% of the urban workforce <clears throat> just emptied out. Uh, and that's clearly not resumed at full capacity right now because a lot of people are still back home. Uh, I think, you know, what you said is really right, that it's not that the economy will just go back on full swing and there's just a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of firm closures which will happen. So the migrant, uh, when, 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 you know, in the coming months, migrants will come back in my view, uh, but there will be fewer opportunities now in urban areas. So it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, there'll be some guys, I think the way it will work pan out is through these social networks that the migrants come with. So there is one migrant stream which is extremely contractor-based. Now, that's interesting because a lot of them have lost faith in contractors because the contractors just completely abandoned them during the crisis. So that's also an interesting thing, what happens to the contractor in the construction industry. But the bulk of the workforce, you know, the whole whole, uh, sort of swiggy economy or uh, the drivers, the plumbers, this whole informal economy, they are not really coming through contractors. They are coming through family-friend networks and so what you see is you know few people going from the family or the friends and then they will sort of on the phone say how you can come now or you know wait for a month so those kind of social network channels will kind of mediate the demand and supply of labor in the construction industry wherever the demand is needed in fact i would say this is a great time to be labor because you know you what you're seeing is this huge incentivization or literally pampering of labor to get them back. Uh, So you're seeing, you know, uh, people being literally airlifted given bonuses, benefits, because there's just such such a shortage of labor. in cities. So it's an interesting time because in certain projects, which have to be started, like Metro projects in various cities and so on, you need that construction labor. And so you need to invest, you know, in the safety of those workers uh, to get them back. I think what firms have to do when they have the cash is to really, you know, Ensure that basic, you know, health. So, for example, they should take the onus of testing. They should uh, take the onus of, you know, providing basic uh, uh, health provisions and ensure workers that you know these are safe conditions. Because that's the only worry for workers before coming back. I mean, workers would love to come back right now, uh, but they do have a worry that you know, what if we get the disease? And so that kind of uh, safety, kind of communication has to be conveyed by the employers. Uh, overall, I do think though that you know, uh, a lot of them. I think I think. Let's just put it this way: the situation in rural areas is much worse in terms of the employment scene now that everyone has gone back than urban areas. So people will still come back. You're right that you know there'll be firm closures, but uh, but using this social net network kind of mediation, I think this is how the demand supply is going to sort of sort of uh, kind of match itself in in the coming
0: months. Sure. And in the meanwhile, how does the situation in the rural economy look to you? I mean this very high level of reverse migration. I mean, the numbers which you're talking about are staggering, right? I mean, uh, clearly has been a huge sort of influx back home. And yes, the the reported numbers of rural workforce have gone up, but clearly it's it's not very obvious to me that, you know, the rural economy is capable of suddenly absorbing these many numbers of people. And clearly a lot of people are reporting that they are working, but are perhaps not working at all. Uh, and then the government has to amp up various kinds of, you know, support schemes, et cetera. So so what exactly is your reading of how the rural economy has coped with this uh, reverse flow of migration? Yeah,
1: see, I think it's again the timing, you know, the seasonality. We've not seen any like, you know, major (laughs) events and so on, precisely because the last three months were June, July, August, which is the classic, you know, agricultural uh, season. So in that sense, that's kind of absorbed that labor. I mean, you know, obviously we're saying that people could have made, done all that agricultural work with, None of this labor force will just come back. But it's like an additional help in the family. So, you know, people are doing all those kind of tasks and so on. I think now the real problem starts, you know, from September onwards. This is the non-seasonal aspect of the migration. So from now on, every day is very unusual for the migrant worker who has gone back because during, from September onwards, they're usually not back home. So now I think you're going to really see these cries of unemployment sort of Layout. and of course there'll be elections in a few states, and I think this will be a huge issue, uh, you know, of giving jobs and so on. Now, so far, state governments have you know tried to roll out packages. This that, I mean, just the numbers that's just too too much, you know. I mean, if the, firstly these are migrations with literally in my in I've argued you know more than hundred year histories, they cannot be like shut down, you know, overnight. There's a cultural aspect of migration, and also the fact that. Uh, these are very strongly networked. I think what will happen is a lot of migration networks will change in terms of destinations. So it's not the case that a lot of these places will uh, reduce out-migration, but they might choose new destinations. So if Delhi treated you badly and your friend says, you know, the, uh, Bangalore was much better, let's let's go to Bangalore. So in past, and I'm saying this because in past shocks, this is what has happened. So whenever you had shocks, the source regions, I mean, there's a particular you know dynamic to that out-migration. Uh, but this, so in India, in the last 100 years, the source region has been pretty much the same because fundamentally it's driven by population density, you know, uh, or, or, or calamities like in coastal areas, cyclones, and in Bihar, it's the floods. Uh, and so, density and those calamities have, you know, created those pressures to out migrate. But the destinations have changed over time. So, Punjab was a big attraction for Biharis. Now they're going down south. Uh, similarly, you know, a lot of Biharis, for example, are going to the Gulf also. So I think that the destinations are more likely to uh, change based again on, you know, these social networks and the information passed on on there. Uh, the other stuff which state governments are doing, I mean, what state governments can do is to kind of, this is, if you're asking, you know, what can source region state governments do? I think this is a good time to really invest in some of their key cities. Instead of trying to, you know, focus on rural development and absorb that labor, That I don't think that's a really feasible mm-hmm. task. It's It's just not enough mean, um, just too many people, basically, to give any meaningful jobs. I mean, you're seeing the reports on Mandrega. The Mandrega is for a particular class of workers. The bulk of the people who have gone back will simply not do Mandrega. It's as simple as that. When you're earning so much in the city, so much more in the city, you will not bend down to do Mandrega work. There is, of course, a class of workers which, which are taking a Mandrega and it's at record highs, but the bulk of the people will not do Mandrega work. So what it means is that, you know, and this is, they're saying that India India lacks urban infrastructure, India lacks uh, uh, good investment in cities. If state governments actually are interested in the source region, they should be half example, you know, Patna should be the the magnet for a lot of migrants who would otherwise go to Bombay. Of course, the, the problem is that, you know, as we know from the fiscal crisis, there's simply no money. So there, there's literally little that the governments as of now can do to, you know, uh, uh, sort of shore up the economy. And I think that's what you're seeing slowly. Bihar, UP, initially they announced a lot of, you know, uh, schemes and policies, skill mapping, this, that. But eventually they're just going to leave it to market forces and say, please, you know, leave the state as soon as possible and get jobs and send back money to us. I think that's really what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that that that's an important point, you know, because uh, at this point of time, the states are in a fiscally much worse situation than yeah, the central government is. So, it's it's, it's going to be difficult for them to pick up the slack, so to speak. But but you also make a very important point about, you know, what kind of overall patterns of economic development should we think about? And that's a question I want to come back to towards the very end. Uh, But it strikes me that one of the other sort of aspects of our existence that this crisis has sensitized us to is the almost abject failure of social security schemes. You know, we have things like the Interstate Migrant Workmen Act, you know, somewhat inappropriately named for our times but um, which is supposed to be protecting the rights of migrant workers uh, but you know it's it's very clear that none of these have really paid off in the face of such a big crisis and I'm just wondering what do you think the government is trying to do in order to promote the resumption of economic activity uh, are there more things that they can do uh, i mean i've heard some kind of talk of you know the government perhaps bringing in something like an urban equivalent of uh, an Employment Guarantee Act. So uh, do you think that's going to help?
1: I mean, I'll be very curious to know how, I mean, I know there's you know, a lot of efforts towards uh, uh, doing this, or at least think tanks are now coming up with proposals and so on. Uh, I think historically it was never there because it's very tough. You know, I mean, it's really tough to think of you
0: know, yeah
1: you know, government uh, program in cities. Uh, and then when all state governments are so hostile to migrants, when you provide an urban, I mean, there's a serious issue here, of you know, who are you giving the jobs to? Because it's going to attract more migrants, and then when states are passing these anti-migrant kind of policies, uh, it's you know, it's it's not an easy thing to sell politically. Uh, you might say you're giving jobs, but it's also going to create this again this you know, hostility towards uh, migrants. So may, maybe some people will find you know phenomenal ways of implementing, but I'm very skeptical of, uh, of that uh, you know route. Uh, I I think. I mean, if you look at uh, you know what what urban governments can do, I would imagine it to you know provide the basic facilities to have safe operations and allow migrants to come back and and get that's the least one can do uh, at, at this uh, time. So beyond that, there's this there's, uh, little. I think in terms of policies, the big policies is one nation one Russian card policy in terms of social sector. Now, the, if you mentioned the Interstate Migrant Workmen Act uh, of the 1970s. Uh, unfortunately, that anyway covers a very small fraction of the overall migrant workers. You know, it it's because again, that's you know based on this contractor-based migrations that registration should happen and so on. But the bulk of the migration doesn't cover or is not covered under the interstate migration uh, workman act. So I, I, I see there's a new proposal by the labor department uh, at the central government, you know, trying to do something for migrants, and I think that's in the right direction. But the the big game potential game changer. Would be this one nation, one ration. And I, I think I'm more inclined towards that rather than, you know, firms doing anything. So the government uh, chipping in. And what that would do sure. is basically, right now your social security is tied to where you're born. Uh, or max, some states have interstate. So you go from, say, Jalgaon, Maharashtra to Mumbai, same state. You know, you can access ration and everything in Mumbai. But interstate has never been there. Uh, and so that has started on the pilot basis, but they must be teething you know, problems uh, with that. And again, there, I foresee a fiscal problem because now if you say that, you know, the Biharis get free ration and other benefits in Mumbai, uh, that is an incentive for more of them to come to Mumbai. And how does the Maharashtra state government then be, or they're going to say that, why should we be paying welfare services for these guys? So again, there is a massive, you know, a, a fiscal federal kind of a crisis. And I've argued that just like the GST, of course, now the GST council doesn't seem to be working too well, but we've never really thought of an interstate migration council or some sort of a dispute mechanism uh, settlement issue, which I think might be needed once this one nation, one Russian card issue uh, comes up. So they've got a good idea in uh, mind. Note, I mean, this this idea has been there for over a decade, uh, and hopefully now this crisis has forced them to kind of get it out as soon as possible. But I think that's a good policy. In the sense that, you know, if this one nation, one Russian is there, then you can actually as a migrant worker access basic food and so on anywhere in India, then you would not have seen such a mad rush to go home on March 24th. Right? I mean, you, you, if you're insured, and I would say that don't make it just a PDS thing, make it across the board. You know, right now, for example, women who come to cities don't have access to uh, ASHA facilities and so on, Anganwardis in, in the city. So many of women actually go back to the villages to access health facilities there because they, it's, it's, you know, the cities are very hostile when you, for outsiders who, who can't show a proof of residence. So portability of social security benefits, I think that should be the mantra. One of that is one nation, one ration, but I think it should be across the board. It should be for health, it should be for education, it should be for practically you know, uh, everything. Uh, closely related to that is, of course, voting. You know, it, can migrants vote, vote in cities? And I think that's that's also a big deal because, and this is just some recent work by political scientists, which show that you know politicians don't care for migrant workers because they're simply not a constituency base in cities. So that is also another issue that historically public goods have been undersupplied to migrants because they are not a uh, sort of you know catchment. Um, uh, vote, it's not a catchment for votes. So one level is you know portability of social security benefits so that. In future crises like this, people can stay out in the cities for at least a few weeks. I mean, what we've seen now is that, the, you know, literally few days and there's vulnerability. Uh, and the other thing is for migrants to be a bit more invested in cities, for that they should be able to vote. And so I would say residence-based voting for municipal elections might be also you know, a good idea.
0: Yeah, sure. Though I can see why that might be politically quite controversial, right? I mean, because as you're saying, you know, it's 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 ironic, right? At one level, migrants don't matter in politics, but they only matter to the extent that they can be cast as the other or demonized. You know, you and I come from Mumbai and we know, uh, you know, the, how that politics played out here or how it is playing out today in places like Madhya Pradesh, right? I mean, uh, where we're... You know the government has come out openly as and said that you know we are basically going for a so-called, you know, what in the old days would be called a sons of the soil kind of policy and so on.. Correct.
1: and a, a lot a lot of states. I mean, it's just uh, absolutely uh, you've seen Andhra Pradesh, uh, it's now become the norm. And what's interesting is you know it's not a very binding constraint. So it's not like when they announce this, it really affects anybody, but just that rhetoric is, you know is is a very nativist rhetoric which, which is also anti-constitutional. Uh, and, you know, there have been court cases in the past where state governments have lost these cases. So if somebody files some case, it, it's not quite likely that any of these laws actually pass uh, the, the legal master. But that's the that's the sort of fad now, which which is unfortunately caught on.
0: Yeah. Though there have been exceptions like Telangana, you know, the Telangana chief minister made some very enlightened statements about, um, you know, migrant workers in his state and so on. So I suppose, yeah, but but politics will play.
1: Yeah. Like Gujarat, Gujarat, you know, where I'm based right now, depends hugely on migrant uh, workers. Now they don't have the best record in providing, you know, benefits and so on, but at least you, you see very little anti-migrant rhetoric, uh, once in a while it might come, but compared to say Maharashtra, uh, in both Gujarat and Maharashtra hugely depend on interstate migrant labor, but Gujarat has been much more, I mean, you don't see that sort of open hostility, uh, uh, now, but I think there's interestingly now more calls on, you know, providing more benefits because if you saw where, you know, a lot of the protests took place, it was basically Delhi, Surat, and Mumbai. And, you know, Delhi, Surat, Mumbai are similar in that a huge part of the workforce is migrant, huge part of them come from other states, and a huge part of them come from rural areas, which is not the case in terms of Hyderabad, Chennai, Bangalore, Pune, which so-called IT hubs now, because there actually the bulk of the workforce comes from other cities of India. You know, so the, the sort of compositional uh, a character of the migrant workforce is very different in Mumbai, Surat, and Delhi, vis-a-vis these other the top 10 uh, cities. Then, of course, there's an issue of small towns and migrants out there. But in the in the big 10 cities, uh, that, and that is why I, I've argued that you know these three cities saw a lot of the protests uh, in, in this, this particular crisis.
0: So to round it all off, Chinmay, I was just thinking of a kind of a macro question, uh, You know, which seems to me to be interesting about the broader political economy of what migration might mean in the context of India, right? Uh, So here is my proposition. Now, as you rightly point out, this crisis has shown us, you know, in some ways, it has been like an x-ray sort of photograph of the patterns of migration uh, in India. And what emerges is that there are certain states, particularly in the, what in the olden days would be called the Gangetic Valley, right? I mean, uh, in North India, which are the main sources of migration outflows. And most of these migrants are actually going to work in the more prosperous states of Western and Southern India. Right. And as you're saying, in some ways, you know, the our entire imaginary of, you know, economic development has so moved far moved away from, say, the idea that, you know, you need regional development. You know, if you think back to the debates of the 1960s and 70s, the idea that, you know, we need more sort of regionally, you know, de- equitable kind of, economic growth used to be a very main thing, you know, every planning commission note would sort of talk about those kinds of things. But all of that has clearly fallen off the map. And, uh, you know, scholars like Anush Kapadia point out that this is a bit of a colonial kind of situation, right, where there are poor areas of India, which are exporting uh, human capital, and in turn getting remittances. And uh, it's not clear to me that this trend, at least in its underlying sort of demographic patterns is going to get reversed. I mean, we just saw the numbers coming out. And, you know, it's very clear that the states which are today supplying maximum amount of migrants are the ones which are likely to see great increases in population over the next decade as well. So I'm just wondering, I mean, how do we then, you know, think about newer patterns of creating more perhaps regional hubs of economic growth and dynamism rather than this very kind of skewed pattern of, you know, one part of India being the main supplier of labor power, and others basically consuming it, and then remittances flowing back, all of which, uh, at least this crisis shows, can in certain contexts become quite unsustainable. And of course, the toxic politics which has gone with it. Yeah, I mean, just to give an example, uh,
1: you know, for example, this Mumbai-Delhi infrastructure corridor, you know, I mean, there's this whole corridor which goes from Ahmedabad, Jaipur, Delhi. I mean, this, was, this has been in the news for a long time and so on. Yeah. And at that time, I mean, the classic question was, you know, why couldn't you, I mean, these were places which are already well-connected and, you know, everything. If you had, I mean, India's problem is, or what India needs really is a Delhi to Calcutta economic corridor. I mean, that is really the heartland of poverty in India. Uh, India's big problem is we don't have a big metropolis in that entire circle between Delhi and Calcutta. Uh, this is, I mean, if you look at India's big city map, it just—and this was not, you know, true a hundred years back, where you had now and Ilaba and many of these places, relatively in relative terms, very big, but they've just fallen off the map in relative terms, uh, and that is why you know people are around Patna are not going to Patna, but people are going to Mumbai and so. Now, so when you talk of regional development, I am in favor. I'm not in favor of a completely, you know, even even let's call it a Gandhian view where. Let's just focus on rural development. let us If you focus on the village as a unit, then you know, if you develop all the villages, there'll be no need for people to leave. Uh, I think the evidence suggests that you know, with more development, more people are actually going out leaving. village. So village as a unit of analysis, in my view, is you know, not appropriate. Uh, neither is a small town. I think it's a city. And so what state government should do, or even the central government, is to really activate some of the big cities uh, as magnets. So, if you're looking for regional development, I think we made the mistake of looking at the village as unit you know, of uh, development. But look at the city. So, each state government, or each, so what I would prefer. So, I don't have a problem if you know some states of India are going to are going to pull ahead and, and pull this migration, uh, 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 migrant labor and so on. As long as if we have you know reasonably large and dynamic cities in every state of India, you know that would form at least one magnet for the people within that state. I think that's probably a more uh, a plausible idea uh, than, than what has happened. And that would help the state itself. So if Patna, Lucknow, if Raipur, you know, these become uh, large cities, they have a massive sort of spillover effect. So my, my take on this is the unit of analysis should not be the, the village or the district, but it should be having at least one or two large cities in those states. Now, how do you activate those large cities? You probably need investment and you probably need to create those you know clusters, which now Gujarat is doing with you know IT, gift, and so on, uh, out there. Uh, but you know, I just I just point out this migration model of development and so on. Uh, there is a reality that the Gangetic heartland of India has got very high rural population density, rural population density, uh, and that's because of you know it's been habited. I mean, this continuous habitation for centuries and so on, uh, and 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 which is very similar to Kerala, and so. You know, one way to look at this is Kerala today also has, you know, though Kerala has these fantastic indicators and everything, you know, a huge part of this workforce works in the Gulf. And so this is a sort of example I keep giving, that is Bihar would take several decades to reach where Kerala is just today. But there is absolutely no uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, reason or expectation that we should see Bihar's migration reduce, out-migration reduce as it starts to develop. I think what we should just focus on is improving the quality of out migration in these, you know, particular states. And so, Kerala has been a remittance economy for really for decades now. And it, these migrations will eventually stop. You know, when will these migrations eventually stop? It's when the demographic transition plays itself out. That is when fertility you know, starts falling off. Then the pressure on the land will reduce, and then the migrations stop. And that is why today, Kerala, where the you know, fertility rates are one of the lowest in India, now the migrations have started slowing down. After thirty years of mass migration, it now st- started slowing down automatically from within because there's you know fewer people being born in care. So this migration story is going to stay with us. You know whatever we do, even if we invest in states, even if we invest in cities, I think it will attract people there. But I think in our lifetimes, there is simply no way that you know the out migrations from Bihar, eastern UP, and some of these clusters will reduce. But yes, I do hope. That you will see, you know, Patna, Lucknow, and many of these urban clusters grow up to be as big uh, and as dynamic as some of the other uh, cities which have emerged. Chinmay, it was great
0: to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team. You can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.